Tennessee, greenest state in the land of the free. Raised in the woods so he knew every tree. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of The Tobolowski Files, a podcast where character actor Stephen Tobolowski tells stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry. My name is, is David Chen from the Slash Filmcast, and I'm joined, as always, by the inimitable Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm very inimitable today. I tell you, I ate Indian food for lunch, and uh, I'm still kind of burping up the tamarack curry. Interesting. I, I had Indian food yesterday, and uh, it was one of those buffet-style things. Yeah. And man, like, it, it is deceptive how much, how many calories are in a scoopful of that curry. Uh, you can you can pile it on, and it doesn't look like that much. But when you eat it afterwards, you really feel the difference. Uh, yes, I, I feel makes. very different. Yes. I feel I feel like a much bigger man than I was yesterday. Indeed, I feel the same way as well. <laughs> Uh, so, Stephen, you know, uh, I host the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com, and um, at the beginning of every episode, I always like to begin by kind of asking people what they've been watching this week, just because, mm -hmm. you know, it's good to sort of chat about older films, chat about, like, whatever we've been thinking about, watching, uh, and it's like sort of a good way to just sort of break the ice. So, I thought I'd ask you today, uh, what have you been watching this week, Stephen? Well, it's interesting. I, I think I mentioned on one of your earlier shows that at the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, I've been picked to be on the viewing group for foreign films. So I look at the foreign films before they get nominated, and everybody in the auditorium votes on yay or nay how much they liked it, and they pick the top five vote-getters for the nominations. And last night, I happened to see a very good film. Uh, it, it was uh, from Estonia, and it was called December Heat. Uh, the, the, the movie was about, I, I believe it took place in 1926. It was about the attempted coup of the Soviet Union and taking over Estonia in 1926. And w whenever you see the movies at the Academy, they, they have it in a double feature. You have the first show at like 7.30, and it can be a long one. And then the second show starts 9.30, 10 o'clock, and runs after that. The, the Academy members have to stay for a certain percentage of the movie, uh, 40, 50, 60%, or it doesn't count that they saw it. And if the hope film so. is a stinker, so. that audience, <laughs> they know to the minute when they could leave that movie theater and have it still count that they actually saw it and therefore can vote. Last night, everybody stayed to the end. It held everybody's attention. And I have a theory as to why the film was so compelling. Two theories. One of which, it was a well-made movie. And you don't see a lot of those that are really um, Aristotelian in, in their form. That they have unity of time place and subject matter. This movie took place over 24 hours in a very confined area with a single group of characters that had a beginning, middle, and end, that kind of thing. We respond to that. But the second thing it had, which got me thinking, which is why I have my stories for the podcast, was that it was about heroes and different kind of heroes in different settings. And it made me think 
about our culture today. And for a long time, I think our hero culture, and you, tell me if you agree or disagree, that our hero culture has been kind of splintered. It's been splintered by the cult of celebrity. It's been splintered by the cult of famous athletes, which is kind of celebrity. And it's been splintered by like reality shows where you basically are watching kind of scary, trashy people. And these people have taken the place of our heroes. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that our definition of heroes has definitely changed. Uh, it's no longer the unassailable, uh, morally spotless uh, figure in public life. Mm -hmm. It's definitely uh, be because of the way that we consume inter information these days uh, is definitely something that uh, a hero is someone who you, you see more sides of uh, than you have seen prior to now. Yeah, I heard a, uh, a producer of one of the reality TV shows talking today and saying that the point of a reality show is to put these things in a fishbowl that we can, like in an aquarium, and we could watch them all day. And I think the relationship of the viewer with the hero was a much more active and positive relationship than watching uh, – a starfish in the aquarium or the famous snails eating the sludge at the bottom of the, uh, of the tank there. Um, if, if I may, uh, I was remembering my first encounter with heroism and I think you may be too young. Do you remember Davy Crockett? I, I do remember Davy Crockett because when I was in elementary school, people used to call me Davy Crockett all the time. <laughs> Uh, as kind of like a teasing thing, although I learned later on that it actually isn't that that big of a tease because uh, Davy Crockett uh, had some good qualities. Yeah, when I grew up, which was I, I was born in '51, uh, Davy Crockett became popular like in the mid '50s, and it was ably represented by Mister Fess Parker on uh, the Walt Disney television program or it was a miniseries or a movie or something, whatever it was. I, I don't think at that time it was called Disney's Wonderful World of Color yet because at that point the world was still pretty much in black and white. Uh, this was in, like I said, the early 50s. And it was a time that was so simple and so innocent that if you could time travel back and run an episode of Shot of Love with Leela Tequila, millions of Americans would have been certain that they died in their sleep and had gone to hell. <laughs> uh, now, simplicity, I want to clear this up. Simplicity does not mean simple-minded. It just means that we didn't have cell phones or computers or automatic transmissions, and we thought wrestling was real. We liked our symbols like we liked our scotch, you know, straight up. And Davy, at least for me, was a symbol. He wore the signature coonskin cap, and he lived in the woods with his wife, Betsy. And he had a friend, Buddy Epson, in a pre-Jed Clampett role. And through some trick of Hollywood precognition, Epson, in the role of Georgie, was costumed almost exactly like Jed Clampett. Now, Davy was a great shot with the rifle, always. But when he wanted to shoot really well, he would lick his thumb and transfer the spit to the metal gun sight at the end of the barrel of his rifle. 
and I would use this technique when I was five and I played cowboys and Indians. I would carry an imaginary rifle and I would lick my thumb and swipe it across my imaginary gun sight whenever I wanted to ensure real accuracy with my imaginary bullets. I remember my father bought me a coonskin cap. And I almost broke down in tears. I was so happy. And to this day, I would rate that as one of the top five gifts I ever received. The cap and I were inseparable. And if you look at most pictures taken of me when I was five or six years old, it will have me in that hat. And the hat, as I said, was more than a fashion statement. It, too, was a symbol. It was a symbol of heroic life, of rugged individualism of personal skill, of manhood. On television, Davy had to combat men like Mike Fink. Now, you knew these were bad guys because they had unappealing names and they never shaved. Shaving was a big part of heroism. One contradiction to the shaving rule was the comic sidekick. For men like Buddy Epson and Gabby Hayes, they had spotty personal hygiene. It was an indication that despite how appealing they were on a personal level, they had not really achieved full hero status. On television, Davy once had to hypnotize a bear to save a little boy. Now, even though Davy had a knife, he had a gun, he knew that violence was not always necessary and not always the best way. Not when you had the powers of hypnosis. And he knew the ways of the bear almost better than the ways of man. Like most men, Davy was uneasy on the dance floor. But his wife, Betsy, she didn't mind. She knew that learning bear hypnosis took time. And Davy could muster an awkward two-step. And there were many endearing shots of Betsy and Buddy Epson smiling and shaking their heads at his poor but earnest attempts on dance night. I don't know if you know this, but also in the show, Davey went to Washington, D.C. as a congressman from Tennessee. And they all made fun of his clothes, especially the coonskin cap, because he was little more than a savage to those blowhards who are running the country. But Davey had a couple powerful skills at his disposal. Reason and plain speaking. And what could have been a very embarrassing episode in his life was once again turned into triumph. Now, that television show was so successful that Disney decided to cobble all three television movies into an actual big screen motion picture that was called Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. And I think it came out in like 1954, 1955, something like that. Davy Crockett was on the big screen. And to this day... I remember at that moment, my heart was jumping for joy. And it was opening at one of the big Dallas theaters. And and these were palaces that used to do burlesque and big plays and things like that. It was either the Majestic or the Tower. I can't quite remember. And the line had like two or three hundred children there. All of them in coonskin caps standing in that line on that cold, cold Saturday morning. And all of us were there to see Davy Crockett, including a new installment to the story, Davy Crockett at the Alamo. We couldn't wait. God help us all. 
we had no idea it was like walking into an airplane propeller. <laughs> None of us were really prepared for what the Alamo was. So the movie began innocently enough, and there were bears, and there was Betsy, and there were Raslin matches, and there was displays of gunship with the signature licking of the thumb and transferring the spit to the gun site. There were unshaven, rude men who were bested by Davy. And then there was more. There was a new character, Jim Bowie. He was well-shaven. He carried a huge knife. He also knew his way around a bear. He told Davy about a place called Texas where a man could be a man. And Davy listened with interest. Now, in the theater, somehow watching, I was feeling like the train was going off the track. I mean, why Texas? Why does he have to go to Texas? Tennessee was fine. Tennessee had everything a man could need. Then in the movie, the fever came and Betsy died. Betsy died with the fever. I mean, what was that? That wasn't in the television show. And Buddy Epson tried to comfort Davy in his grief, but Davy was inconsolable. So he left for Texas when Jim Bowie. And that wasn't on the television show either. And something was going terribly wrong with the story. Davy got to Texas, and frankly, it was not very scenic. It looked an awful lot like the deserty areas of Southern California. And there were no bears, and there were no forests, and what was worse, there were Mexicans. And the Mexicans were in control of Texas, and almost none of them shaved. Davy ended up in a little mission church called the Alamo with a lot of other men. The cleanest of all those men was William Travis. And he was almost a sissy, he was so clean. He told the men that Sam Houston was trying to get an army together to defeat the Mexicans, and they had to stall the onslaught of Santa Ana at all costs. All costs. My five-year-old brain could not grasp the significance of all costs. The Alamo was not a good arena for Davy's skills. He couldn't use stealth. He couldn't wrestle. Bear hypnosis was useless. He was trapped in this little building, and my anxiety level was rising. But then, hooray, Buddy Epson showed up again in the movie, full of irony and good humor, and his unexpected presence gave me a false sense that everything was going to be all right. But it wasn't. Buddy Epson got shot in the heart, and he died in Davy's arms. And as he died, he tried to muster a smile, ironic to the end, and with his last breath, he said, I'll say hello to Betsy for you. And I remember sitting in the theater, and I burst into tears, and my five-year-old heart was breaking. This was not what I had bargained for when I bought my ticket. Buddy Epson, the very soul of decency and rural humor, was dead. And it was going to get much worse. The Mexicans stormed the wall. Davy and Jim Bowie fought back. And a pile of Mexicans were forming at their feet. And the camera started to pull away. And I'm going, what? The camera pull away is what always happened at the end of a movie. This couldn't be the end of the movie because Davy could not survive this. How could Disney do this to me? This wasn't just the end of the story. This was the end of a hero of a coonskin cap. It was the end of someone I could look up to, something that had real meaning. It was the end of decency, of reason, and plain speaking. 
It was the end of bear hypnosis, and all those mountain skills were lost to the dusty books of time. And without my hero, what would fill the void? Some of my friends had to wait for Star Trek. Others had to wait for Star Wars. Other poor souls still numbly play with their remote switching between American Idol and Survivor, hoping against hope for something to replace the coonskin cap. And two rival thoughts came to my mind. One comes from Bertolt Brecht's play, Galileo. The play ends with Galileo renouncing his findings, and a disheartened observer comments, unhappy is the land with no heroes. And Galileo answers dryly, unhappy is the land that needs heroes. And the second truism is kind of paraphrased from G.K. Chesterton, a great philosopher in the early 20th century. He said, the people who don't believe in God, it's not that they believe in nothing, but they're doomed to believe in everything. Under the category of those doomed to believe in anything, (laughs) in March of 1978, there was an amazing story which emerged from Southern California. The story began simply enough as the, the escape of a pygmy hippopotamus from a San Diego wildlife park. But this story grew and grew until it gripped the nation. Now, almost 30 years later, this entire event has seemingly vanished into the ash bin of history. In fact, I talked to some people today who live here in California. They don't remember this at all. But this was such a powerful time that I lived through that I felt that this history was worthy of resurrection. So to begin with, one must cast one's mind back to the sunny days of the late 1970s. Jimmy Carter was president. He was advocating multiculturalism and the neutron bomb. And if you don't remember the neutron bomb, it was a weapon that Carter promoted that killed people but left the buildings intact. And true to form, Carter is still in the housing business. Multiculturalism is still with us, albeit in a mercifully limited form. Its main expression today is the kind of takeout food you can get in Los Angeles and New York and the types of holidays celebrated in the Santa Monica School District. But back in the late 70s, there was a deep belief that multiculturalism could catch on, like folk music in the 60s. And in that fever, there was an attempt to find something African to bring to America. And it wasn't going to be the slave thing this time. And we didn't care for the famines, the genocides, and the plagues. But just about everybody was in agreement over the animals. We love the animals. The problem was we already had zoos. So what do you do? The answer, no cages. We let the animals roam free like in Africa, and thus the wildlife park was born. 
Now, the concept of the wildlife park had serious limitations. The animals were dangerous, so the parks could not be near major population centers. And it had to cover a large area to accommodate grazers like rhinos, giraffes, and antelope. And also, the only cost-effective way to create these parks was to grab up huge tracts of cheap, unusable land like floodplains or under high-voltage towers. The results were that visitors would have to drive a very long distance to a deserted, (laughs) inhospitable area to see lions from the comfort of their cars. It sounds like madness now, but remember, this was the late 70s. The result, the long drive time, the ominous presence of high-tension power poles meant a very low volume of visitors. Consequently, the absolute bottom line dictated that the staff be cut to a minimum, and the people who were willing to deal with lions in the wild and 50,000 volts often had personal problems, like heavy drinking. Combine this with being in the middle of nowhere, having a huge perimeter, you have the perfect prescription for a breakout. These parks were always susceptible to animal breakouts. True story, a band of chimpanzees escaped in Arlington, Texas, lived off of garbage for a few weeks, and it was the subject of many crude jokes about the future birth rates in the area. Yeah, the police weren't laughing. They had set up drag nets to haul in the monkeys, and it was rumored that not all of the chimps were caught. In fact, last time I was in Dallas, which was just a few months ago, there was still an article of paper about the chimp sighting. And deep in my heart, I'm waiting for some time in the future when the ravenous bands of monkeys will descend on Fort Worth. But that's just my own dream. Uh, in San Diego... Back in the 70s, it was a single pygmy hippo named Bubbles. Bubbles made her break for freedom. Bubbles escaped into the nearby suburbs and also lived on trash. And the story barely caused a ripple. After all, it was a single little hippopotamus. He or she could not get very far. But after a week, Bubbles was still free. And the Los Angeles papers started carrying the story. Bubbles eludes capture again. Wildlife officers bamboozled by Bubbles. They had followed their trail. They anticipated the next garbage cans they thought she would raid. But she defied expectations again and again and again. She would double back. She'd jump ahead. She'd revisit old garbage cans right before garbage day. It was like she had inside information. They needed help. They brought in a hippo expert from the San Diego Zoo. And this is one of the top zoos in the world. Interviews on television confirmed what we were all starting to suspect. Bubbles was one smart hippo. And the imagination of the nation was captured. If there's one thing that runs deep in the human soul, if there's one thing that Disney can count on, is that we are all suckers for smart animals. Television commercials have shown talking dogs and talking cats for years. Even though they only talk about food and litter, we're still amused. The staple, the sitcom, has historically been the pet that was smarter than the rest of the family. I mean, take a look at Family Guy. That's, you know, carried to an extreme. (laughs) Right? I was in the pilot of a show in which the lead often wanted to talk to his rat for advice. He was talking to a rat 
for advice. Uh, when you think about it, the, if the only issues that concerned us were really food and comfort, why not listen to your dog? And I, in my household, there were no exceptions. We're all beholden to smart pets. We always turn to them in moments of crisis. And they're often our focus of our intention and concern. And I remember there was a time a few years ago, I was out of town and <laughs> didn't have a lot to do but watch wrestling on television. And I made up an objective list of the relative intelligence in my home from smartest to stupidest, and it went something like this. Number one, smartest was Blackberry the rabbit. Number two was Anne, my wife. Number three, Bandit the cat. Number four, William, the 11-year-old child. Number five, Robert, the 16-year-old child. Number six, Thistle the rabbit. Number seven, Rosie the rabbit. Number eight, me. Number, number nine, Campion the Rabbit. Number 10, Flurry the Rabbit. And number 11 was Tugger the Turtle. And uh, I'm sorry, my- I, I got to interrupt you, Stephen. Uh, so first yeah. of all, you, you rated your wife uh, underneath an animal in terms of intelligence. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Wait, Blackberry was a brilliant. Blackberry <laughs> was really brilliant. Now, Anne is very smart, but Blackberry was brilliant. And you were able to apparently decipher a, a very, with a very fine level of granularity the intelligences of your other animals to stack rank them that way, apparently. You know, David, if you lived here for a week, you would see that it was like the striations of some sort of sedimentary rock. It'd be very, very simple for you to pick out, you know, the intelligence of these animals. I will take uh, your word for it. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, Thistle was Thistle was incredibly intelligent. So was Rosie about getting food. Me, I'm always confused. Now, Campion, Campion was not very bright. Campion was a male rabbit that just wanted to hump about anything. At once, I caught him humping our watering can. And, you know, I've, <laughs> I've never done that. Never. No matter what the neighbors say, I never did that. And, and I need to also point out that in my defense, I never went to Tugger the turtle for anything. That turtle is lucky it's still alive. Oh, dear. But anyway, we digress. Um, my point was <laughs> that the Bubbles was not only a smart hippo, but a hippo that was smarter than several humor, humans, including a hippo expert. And that sealed the deal. It was getting a little Spielberg-esque when, you're, when the animal's smarter than the animal expert. And she was becoming a folk legend. Now, the locals whose trash cans were knocked over and looted now were being interviewed by San Diego TV news stations, and they were like instant celebrities. And Bubbles' charm was evident for these people when they were actually laughing and smiling while they were cleaning up the mess in their back alleys. And the guy was going, well, we heard a noise. We thought it was kids or something, and now they tell us it was a hippopotamus. I don't know. Sounds crazy to me. Anyway, the articles about bubbles now started appearing on the front page of the papers all over California. Day 12, bubbles eludes capture again. Apparently, there was a system of swamps that bubbles was ducking into as a home base. And the park rangers just didn't have the manpower to cover such a large area. And there was simply too much garbage to cut off bubbles from a food supply. So the situation was getting out of control. That's when the San Diego Sheriff's Department stepped into the picture. Their solution? 
shoot bubbles. After all, fish and game couldn't handle the problem, and the park rangers couldn't handle the problem. No matter how cute the pygmy hippo was, it was still a wild animal. During the sheriff's interview, they showed file footage of a high-powered rifle being loaded with really, really long bullets. Now there was an outcry. There was an explosion. There was chaos. Now this cute story, story turned out to be not so cute in a heartbeat. It was unthinkable. Shoot bubbles. The hippo had done nothing. It was just foraging. It had displayed no hostility. It was just had a taste for trash. The midnight raids were amusing. It was almost a bragging point that you were ransacked by bubbles in the night. It was like, it was like hearing Santa on your roof on Christmas Eve. And now they're sending in lethal, lethal force. What is wrong with the world? So the story went national. Animal rights activists had a real cause, finally. People who had never protested anything, people who had missed out on Vietnam, now were getting ready to march. Phone calls started coming into newspapers, television stations, houses of government. The assassination of Bubbles was put on hold. There was an emergency meeting. Police met with government officials. They met with animal experts, and a new plan was hatched. Here's the plan. A trap was going to be set. A tranquilizer dart would be used. If the tranquilizer dart didn't work, well, then a dozen armed police would be ready to finish the hippo off. I remember that day. I was doing children's theater, and we were, our little cast was driving in a carpool to our first school. And all we could talk about in the car was bubbles. The subject was totally consuming. It was touching on some archetypal nerve con connected to the metamorphic midbrain. I don't know, the, the kind of, I think they say the lizard part of our brain is, is like somewhere in the, in the brain stem. And I think that's where we were all hooked up. The thought that responsible people would consider shooting bubbles as a first option chilled us like the witch in Snow White. Well, the memories of Davy Crockett and the abusive Disney Corporation were now hanging silently in the air. Could such horrors be possible in a good world? Could such viciousness exist in a world of decent people, looked over by a just and benevolent God? I was the voice of optimism. Uneasily, I told my friends in the car, hey, man, these things don't happen. Animal park people and the zoo people, they're in charge. This was just news. You know, they'll use the tranquilizer dart. And just the thought of the tranquilizer dart gave us comfort. All of us had grown up with Marlon Perkins and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Jim Fowler often used the tranquilizer dart. It was a good thing. He used it once to relocate some wild pigs that were tearing up a farm in Borneo. And once he even used it to get a Bengal tiger to the animal dentist to have its teeth cleaned. And that was about as close to a sure thing that exists in the world Bubble would be tranquilized. She would be fine. In San Diego, the trap was set. A pile of garbage was laid out by the waterside. Animal control officers were poised with a dart gun in hand a few yards away. Behind them, cops armed with high-powered rifles. The stakes couldn't be higher. In Los Angeles, we performed at our first school. We ran out to the car afterwards to hear the news on the radio. Nothing. No word of Bubbles. The day wore on. No sightings, 
not a word on the radio. I got home. There was a news break, the early evening edition of the news on television. Bubbles was dead. My heart stopped. I went numb. I stared at the set stupidly, as one does when a decree comes down and there's nothing you can do about it. Bubbles was dead. I was so sick. I was so sad. I couldn't even cry. I sat on my bed. I held my pillow, and I watched the report. Here's the story. This is the truth. This is what happened. Bubbles was not shot by the police. Bubbles came out of the water, was shot by a dart. She was scared. She was disoriented. She began running around in a panic. The drug took hold. She fell on a tree stump. Animal control ran up to secure, but she was heavy. She was very heavy, and the tree stump pressed against her diaphragm, and she suffocated before they could get her off of the stump. Now the story gripped the world. Sorrow filled the hearts of everyone I knew. No one could speak. Believe me, we were numb. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. Children cried in school. There were moments of silence taken for bubbles all across Southern California. The protesters who had marched in San Diego to save bubbles now were carrying signs that said, Bubbles lives, and Bubbles, we will not forget. We watched the news. There was one middle school in San Diego that made a resolution to change their name to Bubbles Junior High School. The principal, who was clearly moved at the time, he had tears in his eyes, he said that the actions of the last few days had stirred the student body unlike any event in the school's history. An emergency meeting of the students and faculty was held, and the name change was voted on by acclamation. The principal was behind that all the way. The head of the student body was interviewed, and she said that they felt Bubbles embodied all of the traits they hoped to embrace in adulthood. Intelligence, resourcefulness, and the desire to be free. They left out <laughs> the insatiable taste for garbage, I guess. But the camera panned to the rows of crying children who began to sing a new school song. And it kind of went like this. Hail, all hail, Bubbles Junior High. There wasn't a dry high in the house. Well, life went on in its predictable day-to-day way, even though the heart of the day seemed to not be beating anymore. And in some way, we felt like the world was no longer safe, that it no longer smiled, and it certainly could not take a joke. It was probably the finality of it all, the death, the tears, the singing school children that contributed to the story now being buried. It was buried for about two months when a remarkable event occurred. While tending the animals at the wildlife park, a worker noticed a pygmy hippo coming out of the water. While shoveling dung, he he noticed that the hippo had an ankle bracelet. Now, all the hippos wore ankle bracelets with their name on it because to the untutored eye and apparently To the tutored eye as well, one pygmy hippo looks like another pygmy hippo. He called the manager. He called his co-workers. 
this was big news. This was national news. The hippo that came out of the water was Bubbles. Bubbles. Bubbles was alive and still at the park. All the experts shook their head at the apparent miracle when reality sunk in. The hippo that escaped, the hippo that was killed, that was the focus of national news and consequently became a folk hero, was not Bubbles. Never was. After a quick head count in the hippo compound, they found that the real escapee was a hippo named Rosie. Rosie was the unintended heroine. Now, this story slipped to the back page of the first section of the L.A. Times, was never on the TV news, even though, in my opinion, now it was an even bigger story. It was big because it meant that in San Diego, there was now a junior high school named after a living hippopotamus who had done nothing in particular but swim and eat. Imagine how upset Luther Burbank or Martin Luther King would have been to know that their legacy was bumped for a sea cow, or more accurately, a river horse. This was one of the unintended consequences of multiculturalism. It was a bigger story now because it took on a moral power of what heroism really is and what it is not. In post-Davy Crockett universe, we've been so hungry for meaning that we'll hang our affections, our afflictions, almost anywhere. The bubbles of our world are trumpeted on the front pages of the papers and television while the rosies of our age toil and strive and live and often die unnoticed. And it cannot be said any better than George Eliot in Middlemarch that our world has been made better by those that now lie in silent tombs and rest in unmarked graves. That was Local Hero, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, powerful yes. stuff. Uh, and it sounds like you did a good amount of research to, to dig back into the saga of Bubbles. It was, it was very weird. It was very weird, David, because believe it or not, I called the San Diego Wildlife Park and they wanted to know if they should speak to my legal representative. <laughs> And I said, well, I'm just trying to find out about bubbles. And they said, we don't discuss it. What I found out through other sources, what the, the zookeeper that was watching bubbles did have several citations for uh, alcoholism at the time, even though I, I really don't know if drinking at all was involved with the fact that Rosie, the pygmy hippopotamus, escaped. But it's amazing how, you, you know, it just got under my skin that nobody remembers this story anymore. And I'm talking about it captivated the entire city. I mean, it was almost like, I, I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it had the media coverage of a 9-11 event. It was 24-7. 
on the newspaper, on the news, uh, the schools, the songs. It was the people protesting. It was amazing, and nobody remembers it anymore. Well, people will remember it now. I, I guess you've unearthed <laughs> a few uh, skeletons. Uh, some people, you'll probably be getting some pretty angry emails this week from San Diego uh, Wildlife from Reserve. from pygmy hippo lovers. Exactly right. Uh, well, in any case, Stephen, uh, thanks so much for sharing that with us this week. And uh, I, I want to make an announcement, actually. Uh, from now on, if you want to find episodes of the Tobolowski Files, you can find all of our episodes at tobolowskifiles.com. That's T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y-F-I-L-E-S.com. And uh, you'll find all the episodes of the Tobolowski Files there. Uh, you can also contact us. Uh, Stephen, how can people email you? Uh they can e- email me directly at stephentobolowski at gmail.com, and I'll spell it for you. It's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And also, uh, you know, uh, if people are interested in... Uh, the story movie I did, Stephen. I just since I just spelled it, <laughs> Stephen Tavolowski's birthday party is at stbp. Uh, stbpmovie.com and at Amazon. Very good. So if you like more stories from Stephen Tobolowsky, check out Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. Also, you can rent it on Netflix and wherever movies are rented or sold. Um, so that brings us to the end of this episode of the Tobolowski Files you can find me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com and you can find episodes of the slashfilmcast at slashfilmcast.com we did a couple episodes with director Richard Kelly this week Uh, that'll be really fun join us again next week for more stories from Stephen Tobolowski on the Tobolowski Files see you guys later bye to never have sunlight To let me shine, that's your way. You always walk a step behind. So I was the one with all the glory, while you were the one with all the strength. Without a name for so long, a beautiful smile to hide the pain. So, Stephen, Stephen, what role did you play in Freddy Got Fingered? You, you know, I don't remember my name, but I remember I was Tom's uncle, gay uncle, who gave him uh, his first job. And uh, first of all, I was, I have to say, I loved Tom Green. I loved working on that movie, Freddie Got Fingered. I loved the audition. I loved going in Canada. And it's ironic. One of the big reasons why I wanted to do that movie was because Julie Haggerty was going to be in it. And she was one of my idols. You know, I always thought she was one of the greatest comic actresses of all time from Airplane and Lost in America and all that stuff. And I wanted to meet Julie Haggerty. So I was in Canada, believe it or not, guys, <laughs> I shot with Tom Green for about 10 weeks. I was in Canada, and none of the time while I was there shooting 
was Julie in Canada. I never <laughs> saw Julie once. So that so, was worth it then. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't see her at all. And I shot with Tom, and I can't even tell you how hilarious it was. Tom would bail people out of jail to be in the scenes with us. He'd say, oh, why don't we do this scene like in a huge vat of pudding? And we would do the scene in a huge vat of pudding. And the stuff was hysterical, I thought. Everybody was laughing. And then I get, was it a phone call? It was very much like Spike Jones in uh, Adaptation, where Spike called me up and said, we had to cut your part out because the movie was too long in Adaptation. Tom called me up and said, uh, we have to cut out Uncle Billy or whatever my part was because we need to get to the crazy animation stuff quicker. And you want to know truthfully what my first reaction was? What? This is honest to God truth. Was, oh dear, the film's going to be a disaster. (laughs) And the reason I thought it was going to be a disaster was not because our scenes were so brilliant. I thought it was going to be a disaster because our scenes were act one of the (laughs) Aristotelian format of the beginning, middle, and end. He had to start with trying to have a real job with me. He fails at that and then tries to be a cartoonist. He tries to do it. But if you didn't have him trying to be in the real world and failing, it didn't make any sense him doing what he was doing. And my thought was, the movie isn't going to make a lot of sense because we didn't see him first trying to be normal. And, and uh, I don't know why, why the movie failed. I didn't see it, to tell you the truth. But the epilogue to the Freddy Got Fingered thing was the next year I got cast as Julie Haggerty's boyfriend on Broadway and I spent the next 10 months with her as as boyfriend and girlfriend so i got my julie dream after all excellent a happy ending for happy ending an, to the freddy got fingered also, yeah, a happy ending to a, a story that begins with freddy got fingered and ends happily is a rare yes. story indeed so yeah. thank you for sharing that with us steven my pleasure